Hey, folks, we're going to get to the show in just a second. But beforehand, Vespi and I need to share a couple of words from our sponsors. Uh, first up, you must check out NoomHorrorMovies.com. It's a show called Jay of the Dead's New Horror Movies. It has seven hosts whose collective horror podcasting experience totals more than 60 years, according to this ad read copy. They are like, quotes, the Avengers of horror podcasting. Eric, can you imagine trying to schedule a show with six other hosts? No, it's uh, driving me insane. I'm getting hives right now, actually, from thinking about it. I, I, I don't like it. I don't know how they do it. Reviewers have called it the ultimate horror podcast, and you can find it at newhorrormovies.com or subscribe for free on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google Podcasts. That's Jay the Dead's New Horror Movies, your new favorite horror podcast. Hey, now, we, we can share the title, Jay. We can share the title, Jay, but we are also a horror podcast. So we, we, your, your, your new favorite horror podcast that isn't the Kingcast. How about right. that? Just a little Which note. Which will be that. your yeah. ultimate favorite horror podcast for, of course. for now yeah. and forever. That's just how, how things go. Yeah. Right. So I think that means it's my turn to tell you guys about Fangoria. Yes. This classic magazine has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. The highly collectible publication comes right to your front door. Four times a year, and each issue of Fangoria is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking, past, present, and future, with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including your intrepid KingCast hosts. Uh, they just revealed the list of uh, contributors for this upcoming summer issue, by the way, and guess whose names were in it? That's right, me and Scott Wampler. That's true. I don't have any. I didn't write anything, but I did uh, edit a number of the pieces. I edited your piece, actually, Vespi. I know. I expect you to cut it to shreds. It's (laughs) It's just going to be a single word now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So we got that. Mallory O'Mara's got a thing in there. Stephen Graham Jones. Lots of. Lots of King Cast overlap into this new issue of Fango. So you got to make sure you sign up and get that delivered to your front door. This high quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine. So if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. To do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your entire order. And with all of that said, on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad rock! Bad rock! Bad sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Today's guest is actually making his second appearance on the show today, having previously appeared on our uh, very first episode on The Shining all the way back in, uh, I was like in our first batch of episodes, wasn't it, Eric? It was, it was. This would have been about 1987, if, uh-huh. uh, if I'm understanding time correctly. Hasn't been back since, but he's here today and we're very excited to speak to him. You know him as the director of Hellraiser Inferno, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Doctor Strange, and The Immortal 2012 horror film Sinister, starring Ethan Hawke, who he's now teamed up with for a second time for this month's excellent The Black Phone, which is an adaptation of the Joe Hill uh, short story of the same name. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the KingCast stage, Mr. Scott Derrickson. Scott, how are you doing today? 
I'm good. It's good to be back, guys. Thank you. It's it's very rare that I get to speak to another Scott. I don't I don't meet a lot of Scots, and really? I have a I have a I have a a, a a general theory of Scots, and it's that Scots are usually not good Scots. Mm. This is what I have found over time. Some of the Scots I've encountered, I haven't been a fan of. You are one of the good Scots, I think, though, and so I appreciate. Interesting. That. Yeah, Do more bad. More bad Scots than good. Well, uh, I mean, how many how many good Scots do you mean? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I, I look. I'm I am from the generation of Scots, so I remember being in college classrooms and being like, "There's six Scots in this class." <laughs> Holy so, shit! Uh, really? So I've yeah. So I've I've uh, I've really seen them all. You know, I've seen I've seen the darkest, most evil Scott, and I've seen Saint <laughs> Scott. <laughs> I have I have bowed a knee at, at Saint Scott's at Temple. I've seen everything. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm 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 dead center in the middle. Um, yeah, yeah, just riding the line. I'm in the image of God and deeply depraved. <laughs> <laughs> there's that that thing when like you you buy a certain car and you're like nobody ever has this kind of car or talks about this car and then you see it everywhere that's a little bit of uh that phenomenon going on with this name because i don't think eric's a very common name but in school i was they had to like give us and like address us by initials because there were so many eric's there were eric's with c's eric's with k's you know and like and so i got to be you know eric v for like most of my grade schooling because there were so many damn Eric's and now I never run into any of them. Like there's hardly any Eric's out there. I love it. Well, we we've got two uh, good, possibly chaotic Scots on the show for you today. So that's very (laughs) exciting for, for everyone at home. Let's talk a little bit about the black phone, Mm -hmm. which you've got coming out very soon. Now, Eric and I caught this at fantastic fest last year and got our asses kicked up onto our shoulders by mm. it. you think that's a fair description of how we reacted to that film Eric? oh yeah no for for sure it's uh it's really exciting because as somebody who's been a fan of uh, joe hill's stuff for a while like he, he's he, there there's been good adaptations horns has, has been good you know was was a good movie and you know he's he's had like he's kind of flirted with being like adapted very well but like black phone you know and i know that you know this sounds like i'm blowing smoke because you're here uh, but Black Phone was the first one where I was just like, okay, cool. No, this is this is him finally kind of getting the same dude that is, you know, his dad got right out of the gate. Mm-hmm, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like this is this is somebody taking uh, the best of uh, how he reads on the page and putting it on the screen. And uh, and so I was really impressed with it, man. You know, it's interesting. I, well, Joe feels the same way. I mean, Joe loves the movie. Lo- it was crazy about the movie, which is the you know the the most satisfying thing in the world to me. But I actually haven't, weirdly, we're here to talk about Carrie, and I haven't really thought about how much that movie, how instrumental that movie was to to Stephen King's, you know, success. Oh, yeah. It, it made him oh, such yeah. a fast household name. And, you know, uh, uh, he wasn't really, a bestseller. Really... He wasn't a bestselling author be- <clears throat> before the movie. Amazing. That's, yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Amazing. But yeah, it's, it, I, I'm really happy for Joe because I do think Joe is an outstanding writer. I love his books. And, um, and you know the the thing about that this particular short story about the black phone. I read it for the first time right after it was published. I was I had was having a, a brunch with a with a filmmaking friend of mine, and I was in Los Feliz, and I walked up uh, to the Skylight Bookstore in Los Feliz, and I went into the horror section. I was just perusing books, and I was like, "Oh, 20th Century Ghosts. What's this?" Pulled it off. Oh, it's an anthology book, you know. 
And who's Joe Hill? Didn't know it was Stephen King's son. Um, had Nobody knew at that point. And I stood there at the bookstore and read the first short story, which is called Best New Horror, which is yes. a hor- horrifying story. Just uh, that, 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 uh, you know, that, that story just hits you across the kneecaps, you know? And I was Fuck like, yeah. oh, I was like, oh my God, this, who is this writer? So I bought the book and, you know, went home and read the rest of it pretty, pretty quickly. And the black bone always stuck in my mind as just the best idea for a movie. You know, it's a pretty short story. It's not, uh, it's not, a, it's not long. I think it's like 30 or 40 pages maybe. And, and I felt like the concept of it was so good. And what I liked about that story and what I really have come to love about Joe's writing in general is that there's a fearless quality to it, which his dad has in terms of just a willingness to really do daring things and be incredibly scary. And, but there's a real heart in what Joe writes. You know, Joe's, Joe's a really good guy and there's a lot of love in his stories and, and the story of the black phone I felt like was a terrifying, really upsetting concept, but there was still kind of a point of view of love in there somewhere that, that is very unique to Joe. And, and, uh, and, and I think that that was maybe the reason that it sat with me for so long. I think I may have optioned it some point, you know, seven or eight years ago and didn't do anything with it. And then, uh, and then of course optioned it, uh, again, after I, stepped down from Dr. Strange too. And, or actually I optioned it while I was working on that and wrote the script while I was on that movie and then stepped down to go direct it. Stepped down for different reasons, but I just went straight from Dr. Strange. <laughs> right. To right. Yeah. right. One thing that I really like about the black phone is that you have the kids and particularly, you know, the sister and the brother and well, any of the kids in the movie are talking to each other. Like kids actually talk to each other like teenagers do, you know, there's a lot of profanity. There's a lot of like roughness to the dialogue. I think that rings that rang very true to me when I was watching that one. That's you know what the movie is essentially is. I grew up in Denver. I was the age of the main character. I would have been 12, 13 years old in 1978 in North Denver. And I grew up in this really you know kind of rough and tumble, blue collar, working class neighborhood. I mean, it wasn't you know like Compton or anything like that. But it was but it, but it was a place where there was a lot of bullying, a lot of fighting, just North Denver culture was half white, half Mexican neighborhood. And there was just, a, it was just violence. I just saw a lot of violence and there was violence in and outside in my home and outside my home. And the, what actually started the idea to even write this movie, it didn't start with the black phone. It started with me being in therapy for three or four years, mostly talking about my childhood and how much violence I experienced. And I remember at one point my uh, uh, therapist said to me, "It's I think this is hysterical. It's sad, but I think it's really funny." And he looked at me like no irony. He said, "You do realize that your childhood was a very ripe breeding ground for a serial killer, right?" <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed. I said, "Yeah, I do." Um, so I, I I was interested in trying to do something like the Four Hundred Blows, like an American Four Hundred Blows, and and then I was looking at my own story and I was like it's not interesting enough to do that. You know, it's in, uh, there's a lot of texture and there's a lot of, of little anecdotal beats and everything, but there's no story that I really want to tell there. And then it was the idea of taking the black phone and combining it with my own childhood that I went to Cargill and I said, Hey, what about this? And he was like, hell yeah, this is great. And that's really what the movie is. It's sort of taking the black phone and setting it in my own 
my own uh, middle school years and, you know, that 11 to 13 year old middle school range and, and bringing as much texture and realism as I could to not, not uh, uh, nostalgically uh, or fetishistically remembering the 70s, the late 70s, but trying to capture what it felt like to me. You know, what I remembered right. people being like, what I remember kids being like, what I remember it looking and feeling like and trying to translate that into the service of Joe's really wonderful story. And to that point, you know, you, you kind of touched on it uh, earlier that you have room to do that because this is a short story and not something like heart shaped box or something where it's this long, you know, kind of journey of a story that you have to fit into a movie. Um, and we had King on, you know, I asked him about the specifics on, on what he feels uh, like makes for a good adaptation. And he was just like any, my advice to anybody adapting anything that I'm doing, is like start short because then like those tend to be the best movies. And uh, it feels like you're proving, improving that point with this because you have that room to, you know, expand on the story and expand on the characters and bring your own personal. Totally. Um, he has, uh, he, he has seen the black phone, by the way. Yeah. Joe showed it to him and uh, and I asked and Joe said he loved it and his uh, comment about it he said it's stand by me in hell (laughs) (laughs) makes me very happy so that's got to go on the poster right (laughs) I hope so (laughs) and um Ethan Hawke scary as shit in this movie oh he's so good I understand I, I read somewhere along the line that you know Ethan Hawke was like wasn't wasn't terribly interested in the idea of playing a villain as the as a rule as a general rule. That is but true. This, yeah, and and, that, and now he's doing he's on a tear of villains now. I think <laughs> Blackbone sort of set him off. Um, yeah, yeah, he's a he bad said, guy in Moon Knight, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah, it was very yeah. funny because he what happened really? was you know I I didn't write the role for him, um, but having written it, I was and when I w- w- you know went to make it, and I thought well of course Ethan would be perfect for this. So I sent it to him, uh, you know, sent him a text, and I think I just dropped the, the a PDF of the script right into the text. Didn't go through agents or anything like that. And he texted me back, and he just said, he said, look, you know, um, I don't play very many villains, you know, and, and a villain has to be really remarkable for me to want to play a villain, you know. So just know, he goes, I'm going to read this right away, but just let me, just want you to know, it's probably unlikely that I'm going to do it. And I think I really downplayed it in, when I sent it. I was like, this is, you know, this is about you'd have to be playing a you know sadistic you know pedophile killer and 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 you and you 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 gotta wear a mask the whole time and you know so i i really didn't, didn't think he would do it and uh that same night uh really late at night because he's on new york time uh, i woke up in the morning and there was a voicemail from him and i'm like oh wow so i hit the, hit the voicemail and it was him with this dark scary grovelly voice reading a line of prose from the script that said something like, uh, I'm going to murder the fuck out of you. You know, something like that. <laughs> and that was all it was. And I knew that that was his way of saying, I'm going to do Yes. Yeah. 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 You, you got him. You hooked him. Yeah. yeah. Man, I got, listen, I, I have a lot of respect for actors in general. They kind of pull off miraculous things that you don't really know unless you've actually tried it. If you've tried to act and you're not an actor, then you, you that's how, you know, which is firmly where I am. I am not, not an actor and I, I barely tried to act. It, there's something miraculous about it in the best of scenarios. And then when you're asking somebody to place something like, as you said, a a pedophile, you know, child killer, it's like, I, I have so much respect for somebody willing to get into that headspace and being, 
and and knocking it out of the park because like Scott's right, he is legitimately off-putting in this movie like from from frame one when he's nice he's even creepier than when he's not you know what mm-hmm, i mean it's like mm-hmm. like th- there's there's something very gross and scary and uh in- intimidating there's a million things always going on with this character um and you, you must have just been over the moon when you saw what he was doing with this role you know it was interesting because he 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 is such an experienced actor and i really think he's operating uh, at the highest level right now. You know, I think I've seen this happen with other actors, you know, it's what, when we have the, uh, McConaissance, you know, mm-hmm. where, where, where Matthew McConaughey suddenly turned into the greatest actor on the planet. <laughs> I don't know. You know, he was always good, but all of a sudden there was like, what happened to Matthew right. McConaughey? <laughs> right. He turned yeah. into Daniel Day Lewis, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and Ethan is in a, in a place right now, I think where, where he's really, loosened up i mean the guy the actor that i got was different than the actor on sinister and he's always been great but there is a there was some kind of a fluidity and an ease with which he was doing extraordinary things on black phone and it was really a marvel to watch him work and what he was doing for me was and he explained to me that he was going to do this that he had several ideas about the character and that he was asking if for each basically if for each shot that we would do can he can he have at least a couple versions and i was like absolutely you know we were on a tight schedule but i don't do a lot of takes anyway so we would do you know we would do three four takes for each each scene or each shot that we would do of him and he would give me a real range of them and and so and it was there was a pretty wide experience in 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 those in that range different things at different times and it wasn't until i cut together really what felt to me like the kind of central baseline performance that he had that I realized even what he was doing, you know, and how, how thorough his understanding of the character was. I mean, he's theatrical, you know, he's a magician, he's a performer, you know, and there was something about just the theatrical gesturing and, and, and the way he toys with the kid and, and, and the control that he's trying to have over, um, over, the emotional context of every conversation. It's really wonderful, you know, and, and, and I just think Ethan's above the rim right now, really, uh, really doing the best work of his career. So the title that you picked was Carrie. And I'm very curious why Carrie was it? Uh, it seems like you're hitting a lot of the, uh, at least on the film side of it, a lot of like kind of the masters that have approached Kings. It's Kings not things. Because, is, is yeah, it's not because they're the masters. I mean, it's true, but I would love to talk about all of Stephen King's adaptations. You know, the ad- the film mm-hmm. adaptations. But for sure, without a doubt, my top two are The Shining and and Carrie. I think that they mm-hmm. tower above everything else. Actually, <laughs> I mean, I think that they're such remarkable films. And Carrie, I was more excited. I mean, I picked The Shining because I could. You know, you gave me the choice. I was like, well, if I can do The Shining, I'm going to do The Shining. <laughs> right. um, but coming to me for the second one, I'm really, I think, even more excited to talk about Carrie because I think that even though it was such a landmark movie at the time, and it was such a, such a landmark movie in in you know the the history of of Stephen King's work and being the first adaptation and all that, I, I still think the film is wildly underrated. It, it's not like it's underrated as a movie, but I don't think that that it is appreciated as a horror masterpiece. You know, it's a it's a great horror film. You know, and it's and everybody remembers it being really good. It is. Well, let me put it this way: it made perfect sense to me when Quentin Tarantino did his ten greatest films of all time list for Sight and Sound, like 
three or four years ago, it seems like, something like that. And on the list, there was like five films from the 70s, I think. But one of them was Carrie. And I was like, of course, of course, you know, a, a director like that understands, you know, and appreciates the the incredible directorial vision and um, and the the kind of daring, remarkable filmmaking that's that's at work in, in this movie. It's it it is uh it is unique in the horror genre to me. Hmm. You know, there's 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 a quality about it, and there's specific things about it that that are for me incomparable. There's something at the heart of this movie in particular where you have kind of the source material, Stephen King, kind of at his hungriest, and you have De Palma really like this is his first. Uh, real studio thing. I guess Phantom of the Paradise was a, a quasi studio budget, but it was still like a low budget. And this wasn't a big budget movie either, but it's, this was like him. I'm now within the studio system officially, maybe doing, you know, what they consider like a B or C picture, you know, but, uh, but he is, he has a hunger as a filmmaker. Who's just like, so purely and rawly uh, talented. And he's like, all right, you're going to give me my shot. And here, here it is. You know what I mean? There's, it's weird. I think that there's something interesting about those two kind of master storytellers in that same space at the same time where they're both very hungry. And and this is, you know, them calling their shot and, and just like Babe Ruthing it. You know what I mean? And I I think for, with De Palma, it's, it's also, you have to really appreciate the fact that he's not, he's, you know, this is, this is at a time where he's not working off of, uh, a sort of a, a populist horror era. Halloween, you, you know, of course, changed everything and was the most successful independent film ever made for a very long time and all of that. But he, what he made, it definitely made a, a big studio movie and, and it doesn't feel like it has any predecessor. It doesn't feel hmm. like he's working in the horror genre the way that the studio horror genre films worked at that time because that's not what it is at all. You know, you've got the the only thing that you've got that I can think of is things like you know you've you've got some of the you know Rosemary's Baby you know something like that. So you've got yeah. some ambitious you know uh, filmmakers who you know are doing some daring things, and I think that's also what I love about Carrie is that is that it has no precedent. It doesn't feel like it came from anywhere. It feels like it came out of nowhere, you know, and and that's both for the for the for the novel I think and the. And, and the film, and and it was the uh, you know announcement and presentation of Stephen King into the into pop culture, and still it's funny now to look back on how many books has he written like seventy five or something like that. It's getting there. It's getting there, and you know all these novels and, and dozens of film adaptations, and Carrie still feels like qu- the quintessential Stephen King movie. It's a really interesting point you make about there not being any precedent for it. I hadn't ever really considered that. And I'm not sure why I guess it's I think, because it was before my time. And so, you know, how I, it think is. I, I think that's why I feel the way that I do about this film, because I, because I, you know, I'm a good student of film history and I definitely know the history of cinema chronologically. You know, it was something that I put a lot of years of, of effort into and understanding the world movements. I know, you know, all the major players in the new German cinema and like why they were doing what they were doing and, and, you know, and, and how Hollywood cinema interacted with it. And this, this is a film that was in the, in the center of what I think was the greatest film movement in the entire global history of cinema, which was Hollywood cinema in the seventies. You know, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a better wave of, of movie making than what was occurring 
you know, between Easy Rider and, you know, and, and basically probably Blade Runner. So yeah. I, I think, I think that, that, um, that this was a, this was the horror film that came along this film and the exorcists and Halloween were the three movies that redefined and jaws. If you, if you count that as a horror film that really redefined horror cinema altogether and, mm. and started everything anew and, and, and cleared the slate and, and in these kind of big remarkable film waves that you get, you, you get such originality. And, and I think that that's the, what I'm really trying to say is that Carrie, because it was so influential and had such an impact on how subsequent movies, horror movies function and, and really opened up what horror movies could do. I think that it's, it, you have to sort of stop and take that moment to appreciate what it was in the flow of not just Hollywood movie, but movies, but just global horror cinema. And no one had done anything even kind of like it before. It was brand fucking new. Something that always strikes me when I revisit Carrie um, plays in a lot of what you're talking about here in that it is such a mishmash of tone and it is heavily erotic in, in moments. It is slapstick funny in other moments. The scene that I always refer to in that is the getting ready for prom scene where like De Palma literally hits the fast forward button, right? It's so crazy. Yeah. (laughs) And that is an insane detail for a serious horror movie. And then like, without question, no matter how old you are, no matter how much you're into horror or not, the prom sequence is like top tier visual filmmaking, you know, like you teach it in schools kind of, kind of thing. Right. Um, And it's uh, in an Raptors people, I showed Carrie to my younger nephews. Was it right? It was either right before or right after, uh, COVID, I don't remember time anymore. There was a a time when they came over. I think it was right after, um, you know, the shots went out and we were all, you know, happy to see each other again. Um, And I I did a double feature of Carrie and um, Shawshank Redemption. And I fully expected uh, Shawshank to be the one that they were kind of struggling to get through. And they were engrossed the the whole the whole time. Um, uh, Carrie, they I think they thought was a little dated, but like there's nothing like, and you can totally tell when you're watching it with somebody, especially a kid and, and it connects with them. Like once the, the prom sequence started, they like there, there was no, like, I'm going to fiddle on my phone or I'm going to get up and get a drink. It was just like, suddenly they were glued and transfixed. There's something extremely powerful in that moment. No matter what you think of the rest of the movie, there's something very like kind of primal about what De Palma tapped into there and what Sissy Spacek's performance was and, and everything, you know, I, I honestly think that if you really broke it down, like in terms of pop culture on the whole, like the image of her covered in blood and she's got that very theatrical, like her hands are in like weird, like uh kind of witches, you know, right. pose. She's very stilted. Her eyes are blank. And this is a, a girl who, you know, she, she may have been, um, you know, a little, you know, out of it and out there and, you know, weird, creepy carry before or whatever, but she, she was always an innocent and there's a moment where that innocence is gone. And there's something in, in that, you know, all that combination of the music and the, the split screen and everything, you know, there is to, to me, kind of what to your point is, is, is that this is like pure cinema in that, in that chunk at the end. Um, I don't know what my point is, but I wanted to. Well, no, well, that, that sequence is, is masterful as anything you'll ever see. I mean, just the, 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 and, and the, 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 the 
the surreal slow motion photography and and the nature of the music and using slow motion to create to elongate this moment and the tension and her sort of psychotropic point of view uh you know kaleidoscopic images of everybody mm. laughing at her which are not which are was very daring i think the choice of seeing betty buckley laughing at her was a really bold choice because i remember right. the first time i saw it i was like what the fuck? why is she laughing and it really wasn't until i think i saw it again that i realized oh that's just in her head Right. And, um, you know, that that's, that's what, what, it, you know, was happening there. But I think that there, that you, you know, when you talk about pure cinema, you know, I think you're talking about, about, you know, some movies are, are stories told with pictures and sound. You're, you're talking yeah. about, about, um, the use of the medium, the audio visual medium, apart from language, apart from dialogue, apart from story, which are things that, that plays can do and things that literature can do. What, what only cinema can do is tell a story with sound and image. And, and so when you get into that whole sequence, it's all cinema, it's pure cinema, you know, for a, for a pretty long run. And I just think, yeah, I think the, I, the, the iconic imagery of her drenched in, in blood and the wide eyed blanked, you know, trance state that she goes into with telekinesis functioning the way that it does. It's so scary and it's so surreal. And and I'll just say this about what leads up to it. You know, you're talking about. I'm sorry. Would you say it was your your nieces and nephews? Is my nephews? Yeah, your nephews yeah. watching it. You know, I I certainly obviously because of nature of the score and 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 the clothing and the photography and everything, you it could feel a little dated. But but I think that also, you know, what the movie, including the slapstick humor, you know, this this bizarre stuff that happens. Uh, and these and these you know really incongruous feeling laughs that occur and bizarre things and certain you know Carrie's mother's over the top performance. She thought she was in a comedy, you yeah. know, and 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 that and that literally the actress believed when she read the script she was playing it like she was in a comedy. But I think De Palma was well aware of what he was doing and that I, I just think that the whole movie was doing something that that the that the great directors of the seventies were really interested in. If you look at um, if you look at taxi driver it's the same kind of thing if you look at apocalypse now it's the same kind of thing where they're telling these really gritty grounded stories in a really hallucinogenic way and and there's a quality of dreaminess like a waking dream or freaking hmm. sorcerer which i talked to scott weinberg on a podcast about that recently and and all of these movies are on the one hand you know realistic and 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 you know raw and and everything but they're very they're very nightmarish, dreamy, dreamlike, you know, and it, like taxi driver, the, the, what's the beat of Al, Albert Brooks trying to light the match with his mouth, you know, what's that, <laughs> right. what's that doing? What's that doing in that movie? You know? And, and I think that it all, that, that, that adds to the, the off kilter kind of knocking you off center being like, what's, what, what am I watching here? Um, all in preparation to set you up for, for the, for these overwhelming, you know, uh, go for it, you know, swing for the fences, sledgehammer, surreal, violence sequences that you get into, mm. and 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 I for me that that's a lot of what that seventies Hollywood cinema does. You know, mm. and, and and there's something about Carrie, and from the time you get to the prom, the whole look of it. You know, the 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 kind of atmospheric desaturated long takes the, the camera the super low angle spinning around uh her and her date dancing and talking is is something that i've seen often imitated and never done right it's only done right in carrie 
you know, and uh, and it all is is this very bold, daring kind of movie that only a director with an extreme vision would even try to make a movie like this. And most directors who would try would fail miserably and just come up with something weird and and kind of um, uh, uh, it would feel it would just feel like a cobbled together mess. And so, and, and I think that De Palma is really good at taking those gigantic swings at doing something that no one's done before and doing it incredibly well and and hmm. setting setting uh, a new bar for a genre, which is you know w- which is what I think he really did with Carrie. And and mm-hmm. I think it's also it feels dated again because there's so many things that were done in that movie that then were 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 imitated and drawn from it really helped redefine what horror cinema could be for an audience. Right. Here's an aspect of Carrie I'd like to talk to you about is a sizable percentage of what is so scary to me about Carrie and I'm sure a, a number of other people is um is Carrie White's mother mm-hmm. and this, you know, religious fundamentalist who has, you know, completely lost the plot at this point. And you are, you, my understanding is that you are a very religious person, very spiritual. Um, you're also big into horror. So first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk about that because that's, I, I know a number of horror filmmakers and you're the only one I know who, who is, uh, as religious as I, I assume you are. Um, but also into the really gnarly shit. It's just an uncommon <laughs> thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> So I'm curious to hear you talk about that a little bit. And I'm also curious what you think about the portrayal of, of uh, Carrie's white, Carrie White's mother in this movie. Well, I, it's, uh, I, I'll try to get at what I think you're getting at. You know, <clears throat> I think that, that, that Christianity in America is a really bizarre thing. It's a very, you know, it took me a long time to figure out that, that Christianity and American Christianity are just not the same thing. America is a weird thing. America is a very bizarre experiment that has dropped in, in in just the last 200 years into the flow of history and done things and gained power in ways that no other, you know, superpower in world history has ever done. And the presence of Christianity within it is as weird, if not weirder than America itself. And, what that's become about now is nationalism. Back then it wasn't, so much, you know, the the, sure. the the way that Christianity functioned in sort of the the flow of American history is it was very very Puritan, very separatist, all the way up until you know the the eighties basically, and and in 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 fundamentalism became something that was very culturally withdrawn. It was you know it was about withdrawing from culture, about staying out of the world, not participating in, and that's in Carrie's mother, you know, certainly represents that. Now, to me, that is the antithesis of everything that that Jesus Christ stood for. You know, it's like he he got pissed a lot, and he always got pissed about the and he got pissed about the same thing every time. And what he got pissed at was religious zealotry and the self righteous withdrawal from people in need. That was his thing, you know. And it's like, well, to me, that's kind of. That's kind of, that's why am I a Christian? Cause I'm, I'm with Jesus, man. I agree with him. And, and to me, you know, what, what Christianity in America has de- generally been is this repressive and oppressive kind of um, presence where it's, it's, uh, it's a bullying institution for 
anybody who does not conform exactly to the same uh, world denying beliefs and, 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 and impulses. And so what you in, in Carrie, I really, it's a lot of the reason why I personally love the movie so much, because I do think if I had to say what's Carrie about, I'd say it's about bullying. It's about social bullying at the school, which, you know, one of the best portrayals of high school bullying you'll ever see. And, but it's also about religious bullying, you know, and, and the, 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 the internal behind closed doors uh, bullying that happens with people who are participants in that particular brand of conservative American Christianity and fundamentalism. And the, 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 the fear of sex, the fear of the world, the fear that drives that kind of, uh, which I wasn't raised in a religious home, but I became, I had a very powerful religious experience when I was in middle school that was purely my own. And the church that I happened to get involved with was a fundamentalist church. And I got all really, you know, and for me at that time, coming out of such a violent early childhood, it was perfect. It was like, here's a safe place for me, you know, where I could be feel protected and all of that. But, you know, as I got through high school and got older and got into college, I started to realize, wow, this is all really wrong. And I went and, you know, fundamentalism like packs fear down into a person so tightly that when it breaks, it breaks really bad, <laughs> you know, and that's what <laughs> Carrie's about, you know, is right. that she, she, she is under that oppression. She's under that religious fundamentalist bullying. And I think that for me, that's why I love horror so much. It's the genre of non-denial. And denial is what is what fundamentalism about and horror is sort of like, no, let's take the unspoken and unspeakable evils of the world and the things in ourselves and and the things that terrify us in nature and all and let let's let's go forward into them. Let's 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 dive into that fear. And uh and fundamentalism and horror are both fundamentally about fear. And I think that's why I have been defined by those my my exposure to those things in a lot of ways. But but you know I've tried to turn it into a, a healthy um, process. So in a lot of ways, the horror is kind of a way of of uh, exorcising the the fear from my fundamentalist past. Um, but yeah, that to me that Carrie is very much about that. Well, that was an excellent answer. <laughs> I know. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to to kind of focus a little bit on the, this bullying angle because you're right in that. Well, I mean, one, the, the source material was all about that. King is, you know, said that the novel sprung from him as a young English teacher, seeing Carrie White's versions of Carrie White's in his class getting picked on. Right. So, and he was also so young that he still remembers what it was like to be bullied and to, to be amongst them and not the authority figure. So it was kind of this perfect thing, but there's something very specific that, that, you know, always kind of grabs my attention. And that's the character of Sue Snell. And Sue is played by Amy Irving in the movie. And she opens the movie taking part in the bullying of Carrie White. Like she opens the film, you know, joining in with the chorus of, you know, plug it up and making fun of this poor, you know, uh, young woman who's, you know, be going through an incredible trauma, you know, at this moment. Uh, but she is the sympathetic character. I don't know. I just think that it's very interesting that and that's like a nuance you won't see in most modern storytelling where it's the people who are good almost always have to start good, right? They can't, you know, you meet this character and she makes a mistake 
and you know she she is what in almost any modern movie would be the main villain you know of the movie she she does the same stuff that the main villain of this movie does uh the uh, the main villain being chris uh i guess margaret's probably the main villain but this movie has many villains but the the whole point is that you know that there's a nuance to all these characters that there's good things about the bad people and there's bad things about the good people um and i think that speaks a lot to what you were saying about you know this kind of time that this movie was made um, and that's, you know, kind of the default of, of, uh, filmmaking of the seventies was, was that gray area. I, I could not agree with that more. I mean, I think yeah. that was, that, that was when, you know, the studios basically had given up understanding what audiences are going to respond to. And they just started handing the keys to the kingdom over to these great filmmakers and these, these audacious filmmakers. And, you know, there were some misses there, but, but they, they, they picked the right people into Palma and Scorsese and Steven Spielberg and, 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 uh, and, Coppola and they were you look at the great films that define that era especially the first half of the 70s um and they all did that i mean travis bickle is 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 an incredibly you know empathetic character you know you feel empathy for this guy who's a sociopath and a a sociopathic killer that's really what that whole movie is is kind of having a, a an empathetic view of a of a of a dangerous psycho and and i think that that Amy Irving's character, you're right. You know, I hadn't thought about that specifically, but I do think that she's, you know, an anomaly by modern movie standards, you know? Uh, And when I just talked about Sorcerer with Scott Weinberg, we were talking about Roy Scheider's character and, you know, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a, a a heist driver at the beginning, you know, and gets, gets some people killed in the heist that he's a part of and he goes into hiding. And then, you know, in, in none of the characters in that movie really seem to change much, but then when, the assassin that he's trying to do this truck run with gets shot. He is trying to save his life and, and, yeah. and he's, you know, he's scared and he's like trying, he's trying to talk him into staying alive and trying to rush him to get to, to you know, he doesn't even know this guy. And, uh, and, and the, the willingness of those seventies directors to explore uh, the ambiguities of human character, you know, is a lot of what that era was defined by. And I, right. and I think that, that even when you look at um, John Travolta and what's the girlfriend's name? Uh, Chris. The really awful one, Chris. You know, yeah. that that relationship is so funny to me. And so that Chris's character is a great character too because the, the frustration that you feel when you're watching the two of them in that car when she's just toying <laughs> with him. You know, right. he's like, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing here? You know, and then it ends with, with uh, her giving him a blow job. Oh my God. I watched it and, you know, and, and oh my God. And he's giving, he's like, she's going down on them and her head's bobbing and she's saying, oh, Billy, oh, Billy, which is the one, one thing too. I'm like, wow, that girl's got skills. How is she saying his name? <laughs> she's, she's, a well, is, she's a ventriloquist. Um, and, uh, but but in the, oh, it's so funny how that ends. And she's just like, I hate Carrie White. He ends with him going, who? And then they cut. <laughs> I, 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 I think that mo- that moment is so laugh out loud funny to me, you know. And um and but then you know he's so he's sort of set up to be this really kind of likable guy. And the way mm-hmm. that she's very she's really the arch villain in the movie. And so you kind of feel for him. But then you know he goes in and he just full swing like like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, you know, swinging that axe to kill the pig. And he, yeah. he's just a hundred percent complicit in, into doing this whole thing. And there's something about, about the truthfulness of 
those three characters, Travolta and, and Chris and, and Amy Irving's character and how bullying happens and how there's this, you know, you kind of got one instigator and a bunch of other people sort of responding to her, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that, that is, that feels like what it's like, you know, right. and, and, and of course going back to black phone from the same era, you know, 1978 was when that movie is set, you know, it's a, also a movie about bullying, you know, and I, li- I grew up on a block on a, in a neighborhood with, I think I counted one time, I think it was 13 boys and I was the youngest, you know, so the amount of bullying. So you had a good time. Oh God, it was horrible, (laughs) you know? So, and I, I, so this is a subject that's really important to me. Right. And and one of the reasons why I think Carrie speaks to me so deeply because it hits that both that social, um, that social bullying that, that devolves into actual violence and, and, uh, and that religious home bullying you know, and I thank God I didn't get that kind of bullying. I mean, my dad was a really violent guy, but I didn't get bullied religiously, you know, right. by fanatical parents. I think if that had happened, I would be a serial killer. <laughs> uh, I suppose that's not very funny. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> no, it's very funny. But but yeah, I I, I think that, and I you know, just to just to say one more thing about about the mother, you know, I mm. think that uh, um, you know it's it feels like parody, you know, it feels over the top and, 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 you know, I guess in terms of the scenery chewing, that's a fair thing to say, which I, again, I think De Palma let her perform it like it was a comedy, but he did that on purpose because he, because he's creating this offsetting kind of um, keep you uneasy with what, with what the world, what the rules are of this world right? in, in that sort of, you know, psychotropic dream, like, you know, nature of the whole film. But, but also, you know, I've been around a lot of, of true religious fundamentalists, man, and they're just weird people. Yeah. And, 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 and the distortion that, that goes with that brand of fundamentalism that, and, and the fear of sex. And, and, you know, it's why you always see these TV preachers getting caught in really revolting situations where you're like, what the fuck are they? You know, it's because when you're that repressive about sexuality, the truth is angry the truth wants to come out it will yeah. come out and if it and if you don't let it come out normally if you don't let it come out into the light it's going to come out in really angry distorted ways mm. and that's so much of what she represents <laughs> is a, a truth denied truth about human sexuality totally denied and this is how this is what happens you buy into that fundamentalist evangelical tent revival message that all sexuality is evil and ought to be repressed, and you're going to end up with a gymnasium full of dead kids. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 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 that has to mean it is time for the mid-roll ad read, and I am up first to talk to you guys about Athletic Greens. I don't know if you can tell there's been a slight change in my, my own dulcet tones recently and uh i got hit by that rona i got that little bit of the covid and Mm. uh you know what uh the daily vitamins i'm getting from the product samples from athletic greens i think is helping me out here so this is a good time to tell you guys about athletic Uh, greens (laughs) we should not be pitching athletic greens as a possible cure for covid it's not i'm not saying cure i'm just saying it's vitamins (laughs) treatments but yes, of course, I guess the vitamins would help to some degree. Right. Yeah. I think doctors say, hey, you know, vitamin D might be good when you got COVID-like symptoms. Yeah. And uh, I got 
for sure COVID like symptoms. Mm -hmm. So yes, no, it will not cure your COVID, but it might make it a little bit more bearable is all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So this is a product that we use uh, every day, COVID or not. We want to, and who wants to take a full tub of vitamin supplements when they can get all their daily vitamin needs taken care of in one green glass of water. So what is athletic greens? It's one delicious scoop. You're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day right. The special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all of the things. I like to take a spoonful of athletic greens and a cup of water every morning, chug that sucker down, feel energized and ready to fight the man for the rest of my day. Athletic greens is a cheaper way to stay healthy, costing less than buying all the supplements you need on an a la carte basis, and it even comes with a full year supply of vitamin D. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash kingcast. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash kingcast to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thank you, Eric. Very well done. Uh, and I, of course, am here with uh, what I think may be our last ad read for our good friends over at Wood Rocket slash oh, no. Bits. Yes, these have been a, this has been a joy to read this ad copy. And uh, uh, if this is where our, our association ends, um, I, I very proud to have been able to bring this. This <laughs> you should have told me I would have queued up taps or something for the end of this. <laughs> well, we don't want to make it morbid. We want to celebrate, and that's what Naughty Bits is doing with their products and your private parts, I guess. Uh, your sex toys may do the job, but are they fun? Naughty Bits are high quality, beautifully designed sex toys, but most of all, they will make you smile downstairs and up with a wide selection of bedside products to get you off like the skull shaped bonehead vibrator, the yum bum ice cream cone, butt plug, the bad bitch, the motherfucker, the screwnicorn, the cumball machine, or the suck buddy. Naughty Bits puts the F you back in fun. As for them at your favorite stores and check out the whole collection over at mynaughtybits.com. I just want to say one last time, I have uh, uh, received the Naughty Bits wares and and can confirm that this is a high quality product that you will enjoy if you know what you're doing. And I will leave it at that. Oh, Captain, my Captain, to the mm. Naughty Bits. Yes. And I think that wraps up the uh, ad reads. I think it's time to get back to that show. I think that's true. Let's do it. Yeah. All right, let's go. Hit it, Rob. <laughs> We're touching on a couple of things I really, really, really want to talk about here. Uh, one is the the inherent horniness of this movie, and two, uh, Piper Laurie uh, and Piper Laurie's performance. Uh, I don't know which branch to go off of, but I'm going to stick with Piper Laurie because we've done a, a couple episodes on Carrie over the over the years, and we always, always, always go, oh, and Piper Laurie's amazing in this movie, and Margaret White's crazy, and and one of the best, uh, you know, king villains, and we'll get to her later, and then we almost always forget, and then we get to the end, and and I always kick myself. So I want to I wanna focus a little bit on this for just a second, um, or else we're going to forget again. I Maybe it's because I grew up, you know, I'm an 80s kid, so I grew up in the era of televangelists being larger than life, and the face of religion being 
theatrical. So I don't look at Margaret White and go, oh man, you know, that's crazy to me. Like I look at that going, yep, that's about right. Like I don't see that like as a particularly funny performance. I know it's over the top, but like when, when Piper Laurie is talking about, uh, you know, in an interview, she's talked about getting the role and how she, she had been retired for 15 years. I think she said she hadn't done a movie since the hustler. And, uh, and she got offered this thing and she didn't like it. And it wasn't until, like you said, she read it as a comedy and, and as a comedic role that she's like, ah, I'm really into this. And I think she said, her husband said, you should check out other Brian De Palma stuff. He always does things kind of tongue in cheek. And that was her angle into this. And I just, I remember reading that going, I don't see it. Like I see it. And I'm like, all I see is something that terrifies me. Like, I don't see something that makes me laugh in that, in that performance. Yeah. You know, I find it, uh, I, I feel the same way because of my own exposure to it. It doesn't feel over that over the top to me. Right. You know, I, I think that, I think that it, that, that when they get into the specific conversations about specific things, you know, um, it, it does get, it, it gets into dark comedy. I think, I, I, I don't know if she, it, how much she was intending to do it, but I think that you know there's a difference between being comedic and dark comedy, and and hmm. and and I do think that De Palma, uh, I don't know how in sync they were together and what they were doing, probably vary is my guess, but th- there is a dark comedic quality to it where it's not meant to be. I don't take it as anything that was intended to be laugh out loud funny, but but to be satirically dark about hmm. this brand of human behavior that's that's pretty unique to um american suburban culture and and that 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 as opposed to the big laughs that he's going for in like you know the blowjob scene that we talked about or you know it's just some of the moments that are that are just genuinely funny you know and, yeah. and obviously intended to he's just going for a laugh here we've covered Carrie, uh, several times on the show now. And there's another thing that we haven't talked about that Eric sort of dug up in the course of writing a little thing for uh, Fangoria a few mm. months ago. And for anyone that hasn't read that piece in that issue of Fangoria, um, I thought it might be good for you to tell that anecdote a bit on on the show so it can also live on the show. And uh, I'd be kind of curious to, to see what Scott makes of this. Yeah, so something that... that uh that I kind of stumbled upon while doing, I think it was actually research for the first time we covered this title with, uh, uh, Karin Kusama was the fact that th- this wasn't intended to be, it was a United artist, I think was the studio, right? Um, it wasn't intended to be their like big picture it, it was like the sub $2 million movie. They didn't know that it was going to be a hit really until they started screening it. And they screened it as the second part of a double bill. Now the screenwriter on like the DVD says that it's a double bill, the movie called sparkle, which is like a proto, uh, a dream girls. But I, in my research, I found that not to be true. And I actually dug up the actual movie that it was, it was double billed with. And it was a sex comedy called Norman. Is that you? Uh, which is a Red Fox movie, and it's extremely problematic because it's it's all about a uh, a black father and finding out his son is gay, and he spends the whole movie trying to make him not gay anymore, and it, and it's a laugh riot. But Carrie was the double bill on 
uh, on that uh, for preview screenings. And Stephen King has said that the first time he saw the movie was it as the second part of this double feature. And he walked in going like, oh, my God, like like this audience, it was like predominantly black. I think he said he watched it in, in Boston. He walked in going, oh, man. So they're, they're all going to hate it. You know, this crowd with his own prejudices, I guess, it was saying this crowd isn't going to relate to the problems of a of a bullied white girl. Uh, and he said he knew that it was going to be a hit when the audience ate it up. Like he just fucking loved the movie. And so I, I thought it was really fascinating that that really the first audience to kind of embrace Stephen King was a black audience. And that that's when uh, Fangoria asked me to to write a piece uh, about Stephen King uh, in their thing. And I'm just like, well, there is this one little interesting tidbit. And of course, uh, Phil Nobile Jr. was was all over it whenever I pitched him the idea of of, uh, you know, kind of black audiences being the the very first to embrace Stephen King. It's a good anecdote. And, you know, black and Latino audiences drive a lot of the success of horror in general. Right. For sure. You know, that, that, that's and something have, that's and have been for decades. And, and, yeah. ha- and ha- have been for the duration of my career. You know, I've been, I've been hearing that from, you know, from studio executives from, from my very entrance into Hollywood, just like that's, that's a big part of the audience that goes to see these movies, you know? And, and, uh, and I, I love that. I think that's fantastic. So it makes perfect sense to me what you're saying. It doesn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. You must have gotten a fair amount of that on Last Exorcism, Emily Rose. I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody called it the Last Exorcism of Emily Rose. <laughs> what is it? What is it? The ex- it's called the Exorcism of Emily Rose. God damn it! The Last Exorcism is another movie. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm conflating the two, but um, and and also the Last Exorcism has the greatest sequel title of any film ever made. I think the Last Exorcism two. Is uh, um, <laughs> is is just the funniest title ever. The other last exorcism. <laughs> the penultimate exorcism. Yeah. <laughs> it would be cool to launch a new franchise, and the first movie is called the fourth to last exorcism, <laughs> and then you just work your way up. But yeah, they, you know that I, I, for sure. You know there there was a. Um, was, I think, if I remember right, in terms of the demographic information that came back on on the Exorcism of Emily Rose, the uh, you know that movie was a shocking financial success. The opening weekend set a box office record for that weekend, yeah. And and it was the Latino audience that showed up hmm. for it, and you know, and these are audiences that Hollywood doesn't hasn't invested the time or effort or found a way or whatever and still has tra- into tracking you know they don't they don't track them the way that they do um white audiences and so what? it was a big it was a big surprise that is that was i don't know if that's still the case i know that because i don't really deal with much of that stuff anymore but i i remember at, at the time that you know nobody saw the the the, the box office numbers for, that i got on emily rose coming and it was because of of they weren't you know I remember back then, I don't, like I said, I don't really know where, where box office tracking is at now in terms of technology and how they do it. But at the time they just didn't have a way of tracking, um, primarily Latino audiences. I would assume they would just be counting ticket sales, a ticket sales, a ticket sale, right? No, when I say tracking, I'm talking about, uh, I'm talking about, uh, in um, advance. Yeah. I'm trying to predict. Oh, I see. see. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so, so they had an idea of you know what they thought the movie was going to make and then it was way higher and they were like yeah the latino audience showed up and yeah and which means that out. they weren't the yeah they weren't pulling the uh awareness on on uh, exactly. latino audiences exactly yeah. 
Uh, do you think that it's probably uh, another religious angle there, though? You think because yeah. um, because Catholic. the the yeah the Catholicism angle, for sure. you know, I, yeah, yeah, for, yeah. for sure, and, and I, that that's that's no question that that's a, a big part of it. You know the, right. um, but you know the, the, it's also there's something about you know horror that appeals as a genre, you know, to to that's black true. and Latino audiences for sure. Right. They they really drive the, the box office on us. Yeah. Because we've talked about it. We talked about it, you know, um, with the Belay brothers we had on. And we were talking about how horror's always been about, like, the underdog and the outcast. And, and uh, of course, that's going to be appealing to, you know, people who society has been shitting on for, you know, for the entirety of, you know, of, of, of the American experiment, as you as you put it. One thing I want to mention, too, is, you know, going back to Carrie, I, I, I didn't know that <clears throat> the movie was kind of a low-risk and it doesn't feel like a big budget movie. It certainly feels like a studio movie because of Brian De Palma, but I can mm-hmm. see that, you know, the power and the grandeur of the movie is in the filmmaking, not in the budget. You know, that's definitely the case. And I, I it's like the story I heard Martha Coolidge tell about um, making Valley Girl, you know, and Valley Girl was just a small little drive-in exploitation movie that was, you know, supposed to be, it's like here's the here you know here's the story you got this you want to make the story great you got to have you know some tits and ass at this place and this place and this place in the movie <laughs> it was that kind of a movie like as long as you've got this in it, it just you know and don't go over budget you you've done your job and she tells the story about screening Valley Girl for the producers and they were when and it was just the two producers and her and the lights came up and when it was over one of them looked at the other one and said. Oh my God, she made a real movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to talk about the horniness of this movie. And I think that this is something that if you love De Palma, you know, you're going to get a, a big whole heap of horny whenever you're going to watch whatever the fuck you're watching. That's a Brian De Palma movie. Oh, he's so horny. He, that, that is a very horny man. And I ha- rewatching who's horny, this. Who's, who's horny or hammer Paul Vorhaven? <laughs> who's the who, they should, they, who's let's have the let's have a horny a horny off, off. Yeah. horny yeah. off I don't know you watch flesh and blood man it's it's kind of hard to that is actually a great question who's <sighs> hornier Paul Verhoeven or I I think De Palma like my my gut is going to Palma like he's horny in the details where Verho Verhoeven's like very much horny on Maine and then he moves on you know what I mean but the, I don't know but then you watch Black Book I you know it's a uh, tonal thing. You know, a no uh, uh, Palma movie in general feels horny, even when it's not being explicitly horny, if that makes right. sense. You know, with Verhoeven, I feel like, well, you're going to get some horny in there, but that's also not the point. I think I think Verhoeven tends to lead more darkly satirical. And that's the that tends to be the the tone that I get from him when i think of verhoeven that's what i think of whereas with the palma the first thing mm. i think is horniness so giving it to the palma yeah, yeah it's, it's it's almost always in a uh it's almost always in a in a, in a setting of inherent tension not just sexual right. tension in fact not even usually sexual tension when i think about his films it's 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 the the presence of of sex and and that 70s kind of nudity when you can feel this is not going to end well, mm. <laughs> you know, that, that, that is, that is, you know, very different than most filmmakers for sure. Yeah. 
I mean, it's, even it's the, op- a- the opening of Carrie is, you know, that's when you know you're watching a movie from, you know, a director who's got a very unique male gaze, you know, and, and, <laughs> right. but it's not, and, and there's, it's one thing to be, I, I, I mean, I like that term and I've, I've learned a lot sort of understanding you know what? What especially feminist critics mean by the male gaze in 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 movie in movie making, and with and certainly I think there's some of that present here, and especially in that opening. But I still find that opening, apart from that, very uh, upsetting. Yeah, you know, upsetting in, in in the sense of you can just feel right away that that on the one hand he's playing into the voyeuristic qualities of let's do slow motion photography with a bunch of new girls in a locker room but it, but you can and it's this you know very swelling romantic music but you can feel that this is bad something's not right here this, this yeah. feels like if you feel yourself getting set up and i and i do think that where he goes with the you know with the menstruation scene in the shower is is still one of the more audacious openings for a big <laughs> populist mainstream movie that I've ever seen. Fuck yeah. Right. I'm going to tell you something. I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, but, and this goes for right up until the most recent viewing I had of it, which was for the, for this particular show, the opening net never fails to shock me every it's so single shocking. time. Every it's single so, time. It's so upsetting. And the fact that the, and this is true for, you know, for, King's, you know, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, his tapestry hodgepodge, you know, novel. But it's, but it, the whole story is a, is all about the repercussions of a girl getting her period. That's what the yeah. story is, you know. Yeah. And and there's something extraordinary about that by itself, and the, and the way that it's done, and then just the bullying that sets in after it. It is so shocking and so surprising and so upsetting. And for me, the thing that's so it's not just the graphic imagery of the blood and the water and the shower and the bullying with the throwing of the tampons and all of that. It's, it's, it's the upsetting quality of what's wrong with this girl that what uh-huh. is hap- what is happening to her? Right. You, that, that doesn't explain, it doesn't explain that, that she, it, it, until the, at the scene after with the mother, it doesn't really explain. She just wasn't told right. what, what happened. She just had no idea what was happening to her own body. And so the fact that that scene plays out with all of this happening in such a way that you're sort of left to figure it out yourself. Wait, she, she wait, she doesn't know what, what's, what, what is this? Um, and with all it, that nudity going on. Yeah. You know, exactly. that's like, there's just, it, it, for whatever reason, uh, in between viewings of Carrie, I always forget like how, uh, what's the word? thorough the nudity is <laughs> like in the opening of this movie you know it's always like yeah well there's a shower scene there's some some naked ladies but no it's like a fucking like a video that got banned from NT- MTV in the early 80s for for a good five minutes there and you're like holy shit like this is not something you would see nowadays for sure yeah that mm-hmm. was a that, that that was very of that moment you know it was like mm-hmm. last tango in Paris kind of started it i think um that kind of um full frontal uh, kind of flat let's just let's just let bodies be out there and i i I saw so i saw so many movies when i was i was you know it was one of my saving graces was my family was a movie watching family we would see sometimes like 
you know, go to a matinee and then, and then a double feature at the drive in the same day, <laughs> you know? And so oh, I saw wow. a lot of, I saw a lot of these, uh, of, of these lower budget exploitation films at the drive in growing up. And it's pretty common, you know, that kind of, um, of, of exploitation, you know, just that, that stuff just being right out there and, and used. And I think, and who knows, I mean, you know, it's possible it's very possible. I'd be interested to know this if, if, if that was, it's United artists. So maybe not, but you know, if, if that was part of the mandate of, or, or part of the reason why uh, the movie got made, cause it's like, Oh, it's got a bunch of, it opens with a bunch of naked girls in the locker room. Well, we can't lose with that. We, even if the movie's not good, we know, we know, how, we know how to put that into drive-ins and get our money back. You know, Right. That's a very good point. <laughs> That's probably exactly right. And you know, so- De Palma was the man for the job. He wasn't stepping around from that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, well, the thing about this movie's level of horniness, though, is it's not just restricted to the titillating scenes. Like, th- the horniness is the subtext of so much of this movie. Things that aren't inherently sexual scenes. The, the scene, you know, in the car with uh, John Travolta's character and, and uh, Nancy Allen's character, we've mentioned, you know, it ends in a blowjob. That's a sexual scene. But there's, like, shots during the argument where... Where the male gaze that you talked about, where John Travolta is like scoping out her chest and we get a, a close up of her of her chest, you know, like there's there's so much horniness like going on underneath the whole thing. And even in the horror scenes, the the dropping the pig's blood, uh, Nancy Allen's talked about how she was directed by De Palma to play it sexily and she plays it like she's having an orgasm when she, when she pulls the rope finally, and there's a slow buildup to it and it like it escalates. And, you know, it's, it is such a bizarre choice for that moment, which is a moment of cruelty and uh, setting off horror is an orgasmic scene. And then the, the death scene of Margaret white, uh, she uh, uh, Piper Laurie said multiple times she wanted to play it orgasmically, and she does. She plays it her death as 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 an orgasmic release. It so there there's orgasms all over this fucking movie. Uh, this is a very highly sexualized movie. I agree. It, it is, but you know, for me, this is again. I love this conversation in terms of what we're you know willing to dive into to talk about here because I hmm. I think that. Everything you're saying, obviously true, but for me, again, I got, I got to go back now in the context of that to the subject of bullying, not just, we talk a lot about outsider characters in, in, in movies, but this, we're talking about something else here. Sissy Spacek being cast now in the, in the, in the, in the novel, uh, Carrie is, is described as, as over, overweight and having really bad acne. Mm-hmm. I remember, I remember that. And right. like, that's the, the biggest difference, but, but, but Sissy Spacek was, you know, um, this, you know, wafy, uh, you know, otherworldly. Girl, uh, otherworldly girl who was not a, you know, beautiful, like the other girls. And, you know, and do you guys, there was a sound, I'm look the lyrics up. There was a song called at 17 in the seventies that was a hmm. hit. And here, I just pulled it up really quick. And like, let me just read you a couple lines from this song. It's it's it. Uh, Janice Ian was the was the artist, and it was a big big hit at the time, uh, nineteen seventy five. It won it won a Grammy. I'm just gonna read you like the first and last stanza from this because this song is ama- this song is one of the most powerful songs about sort of teenage self loathing. 
I learned the truth at 17 that love was meant for beauty queens and high school girls with clear skin smiles who married young and then retired. Hmm. The Valentine's I never knew the Friday night charades of youth were spent on one more beautiful at 17. I learned the truth. And then the chorus of it says, and this is like the last verse, it ends with this too. Uh, they call and say, come dance with me and murmur vague obscenities at ugly girls like me at 17. This was hmm. a big hit song in 1975. And I remember hearing like that song and seeing movies like Carrie. And I just, I related to her, you know, and, and I think that we can talk about the horniness and the male gaze that's going on here and all of that. But I think that, that again, one of the things that ought to be revered about this movie is who actually makes a movie about an outsider girl who doesn't, who actually is not some beauty queen in hiding that's going to transform by the end. You know, Mm -hmm. she is truly not. And and, and this is true of the novel too. The story is the story of somebody who's never going to fit in with those girls ever. That's not even a hope, you know, and, and, I, I love that the guy, you know, is trying to help out and Amy Irving says, will you take her to, to the prom and everything? But I think that there's something about the empathy for the oppression that, that has befallen this girl, you know, because she doesn't look like the other girls because she's, you know, a, as a victim of a religious uh, hysteria and, and, and oppression there that, you know, the empathetic view of the victim of social and religious bullying is so wonderful, you know, and, and so important. And, and I, I don't, can't think of another movie that takes that more seriously. And, and just the last thing I want to say about that is part of what I loved in watching this recently was how the movie doesn't just end with the vengeful act, hmm. because on the one hand, the vengeful act is terrible. But then when she goes home and, and you know, takes, takes a bath and gets cleaned up, and it's just so sad to me when she's standing to her mom. She's just like, Mama, please hold me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this horrible thing has happened, and she's killed all these people, and she just wants to be loved. She's just a human being, you know, and that the movie was willing to go back into that empathetic, empathetic view of her even after it had turned her into, literally turned her into a monster. You know, it, it, it still says, you know, this is not her fault. She's just trying to be loved. She's just trying to survive as a human being. And, and of course, you know, is then forced into, the, in, into a position where she's got to defend herself against her mother. I mean, neither the book nor the movie would work if it didn't have that empathy. Yeah. And I, and I think that, that I just, that's got to be, that just has to be said as being the central thing that makes this a great film. I don't right. think that there's, there's anything that's the unmissable quality of Carrie that makes it, you know, an important uh, American classic. Of course. And I don't think Eric is positioning horniness as the predominant flavor of this. There's nothing titillating about Carrie, I don't think. I agree with that. You know, like even in that. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, implying that. I'm just, I'm just saying that. Yeah. I'm also not criticizing the movie or trying to hold it up to, uh, you know, a weird, um, I don't know, prudish standard or anything either. Like I love the fact that it's such a horny movie because it, it, I think what we're talking about is it all speaks to authenticity Yes. in the, in the bullying you have 
the capa- everybody has the capacity to be cruel and everybody has been cruel. No matter who you are, you've been cruel to somebody at some point in your life. It's just human nature. You've done it. Um, you can be a Sue Snell and feel bad about it and try to avoid doing it and make amends. You Or you can be you know, a Chris and double down on it. Uh, but everybody's had experience with being the bully and being bullied. And, and the fact that this story... Uh, you know, Carrie White gets to be the bully at the end. You know, she she gets her her revenge uh, as well against people who had nothing to do with it, like the the poor uh, uh, coach, um, you, you know, who's done nothing but help try right. to help now, her. Let, let, can we talk? Can we talk about that for one second? Sure. This, because I, I'm very curious what you guys think about this. Uh, on the one hand, I love it because the movie has so much complexity, and and you know, there's there's such a willingness to uh, allow. Uh, everyone, including Carrie White, to be to be flawed and to be and to be um, uh, not super easily defined, but let them be authentic. Like you just said, yes. everything is about authenticity. Very, very committed to authenticity uh, is Brian De Palma. You know, in, in this movie, it, it's still it still has. It, it's not like I feel like it's wrong, but it's still you know I feel a, uh, uh, like I'm driving a car and like the, the brakes get hit suddenly hit my forehead smashes against the windshield every time i watch carrie and i see that thing swing down and 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 smash betty buckley betty buckley in half i'm yeah. always just like oh god no what wait what what why yep. you know i have that feeling every single time and i'm not yeah gonna, but that's that that's a great yeah. feeling to have <laughs> <laughs> what no no i i i i think that it's why it's very unusual to me that the movie does that. I mean, most movies would never allow having built so much empathy for Carrie White and ha- and Betty Buckley having shown so much compassion for her throughout the movie. You know, she doesn't deserve that. I'll tell you why. It's because <laughs> how do I put this? By undermining that empathy and showing the the full range of Carrie's power and that it does not discriminate. I think it becomes way scarier mm. because oh, you sure. realize she cannot control it. It's it's like once you take the cork out of that bottle, you are fucked, my man. If you're anywhere within, say, I don't know, a gymnasium's uh, size of, of space with Carrie at if that you, point. If you're you there, are you're, you're dead. Yes. Yeah, right. that's right. That's right. Yeah. Do you think that do you think that I mean, there's no way to know this, but do you think the audiences were confused by that or confused by the, the, the kaleidoscopic image of of the gym teacher, Betty Buckley laughing. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I mean, certainly I'm sure was, I certainly was the first time I saw the movie. Yeah. I mean, I, for sure. Anytime you play with point of view, I think audiences, especially now today's audiences are trained to take everything they're given at face value right. on screen, yeah. which is why you can see the unending fucking discourse over the last Jedi and seeing the, the different points of view on, uh, how Luke Skywalker handled the the Kylo uh, the young Ben thing, you know, where everyone's like Luke was going to murder him. It's just like, nope, you know, that's you only say that because you you believe exactly what you're told from that point of view. It's like you're not understanding the context. The context is you're seeing through uh, Ben Solo's eyes. This is how he remembers it going. You know, this is the the uh, Kurosawa, <laughs> you know, of it right, all. Right, people right, aren't right. people aren't used to the shifting. Um, perspectives. So, uh, of course, people today, especially, I'm not sure about the 70s. I think the 70s pe- audiences were a little bit more, 
used to that gray area um, and yeah. used to that shifting perspective. But, you know, obviously, if you just look at what was making all the money, then it, it was complicated movies. You know, it wasn't just just the, the crowd pleasers. So obviously, for sure. But um, to me, that's what I love about it. And that's what I think makes, you know, Carrie such an interesting character, because we get asked all the time, like, who our favorite Stephen King villains are. And, you know, we'll be like, oh, you know, Randall Flagg and Pennywise and, and all this stuff. And then every time somebody goes, well, what about Carrie White? And it's like, I I just, I, she did an, an unquestionably, her, her body counts higher than Cujo, you know, or <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like, you know, but I, I, I have a very hard time seeing her as the perpetrator of this. But at the same time, you, you take away her psychic powers and you put a, a, a an AR-15 in her hands. Do you have the same empathy? You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's the, very, very like, I don't interesting know. comment. No, that's really good. I love what both of you just said. I think that last comment, Eric, is really, really astute and, and significant. And I think that, true. that and I think that the uh, that Scott, your comment about uh, about it's way scarier, you know, um, and and the, and the out of controlness. Also, a very Stephen King thing, like Firestarter. You know, yes, the, exactly the the, the 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 fact that that you know these these paranormal abilities that are given to these people in, in pain and, you know, and under duress that, that, that is uncontrollable creating collateral damage is really, really interesting and does make it more scary, you know, and, and, and creates, it's still one of those things where you also know that, you know, she probably isn't consciously when she goes home, Carrie White is probably not consciously aware that she just did, you know, of who she hurt and how, they were hurt, but it's like that. It's going to be crushing for her to 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 understand, you know, what had happened. But it would. It, I think that that's really really interesting. And again, this just gets to the to this this seventies auteur filmmaking that is so rich and complicated. You know, you can't you can't dissect things so fundamental as this in in very many modern horror films. Well. I think we had to loop back around uh, to the black phone to to bring this thing in for a landing and sort of, you know, go out on the. We usually ask all our guests, you know, to tease whatever they've got come coming up, and obviously this is a big deal for you right now. We're recording this way in advance, but we're speaking about it, uh, like it's coming out uh, this week or the next. How are you expecting audiences to react to this? You know, we touched on it a little bit before about, you know, the. I mean, there's violence against kids. There's a lot of uh, bad language between the kids, stuff like that. It's not a um, it's not a very safe movie. And uh, I feel like every new horror film that comes out gets put through this social media ringer of what is okay about it and what is not. Mm. And, you know, it's um, it's sort of just symptomatic of the way uh, well, the way social media and whatnot is these days. Mm. But um, I'm, I'm curious what you're what you're expecting the uh, general audience's opinion to be of, of the black phone. Well, I mean, I've, you know, I've seen, I've seen it screened for four audiences now, you know, mm-hmm. two test screenings and then we screened it at fantastic fest and then we screened it at beyond fest and, you know, in all, in all four situations, you know, it seems to be a really great experience for the audience. You know, they're the, right. You pay to see a horror film, you're paying to get scared. But I think that, you know, it's. I think the movie's scarier than I thought it was. Um, the responses seem, certainly seem to indicate that. But I, I think that the main word I would use is 
you know, suspense. There's a suspense quality to the movie that holds. Yes. Holds, holds you uh, pretty that, you know, when we tested it both times, that was unanimously the thing that audiences liked the most about it. And so, you know, you do, you go to see a movie that's got a marketing campaign like this one, you want to have a a visceral experience. And I think audiences are going to have that. So I'm expecting that. And I think that, that there will be, a lot of appreciation for the performances. Yes. You know, I, th- I think that these two kids are, are miraculous in this movie. They both yeah, you are got lucky st- as hell, didn't you? They are, they are just so, 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 so good. Um, Mason Thames who plays Finney and, and, uh, um, and uh, Madeline McGraw who plays Gwen, his little sister. They're both just extraordinary. And Ethan Hawke is extraordinary. So, you know, the three of them are, are, are the, are the leads in the movie. And Jeremy Davies is this abusive father is very good. So I think yeah. that, you know, I, I like, um, I know that it's, it's a, it's a, you know, risky thing to, to continue to embrace the transgressive qualities of the horror genre. But to me that why, why else do it, you know, and, and you're, you're right. Social media, who, who knows? I, maybe I'll get dinged for something that I can't foresee at this point. Sure. Um, but, but I certainly, I certainly made the movie I intended to make, you know, and, yeah. and I really am proud of it. And I think that, that audiences are going to have a, a great experience watching it. And I think it's about something. I think the reason I felt so compelled to go make it goes back to what I said about Joe Hill's writing. You know, I made the movie from a point of view of love, you know, so it's not a cynical movie at all. And it's, and it's a movie that has more heart and hope in it, I think, than anything I've made in my career. Oh, for sure. There, there's a yeah. whole it takes a community aspect right, to, right. to the movie that I don't want to uh, spoil if people have been avoiding the uh, the trailers and, and whatnot. But uh, th- there is something, you know, oddly like soul soothing about this movie um, where even like kind of beyond death, people are willing to help. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. There, there's something very optimistic uh, about this, this uh, very dark and, uh, you know, upsetting premise. I mean, know, I think, you know, Steve, out of it. Steve, you know, uh, Stanley Kubrick said the shining was his most optimistic movie because it was the <laughs> yep. only movie he made that, you know, that, that, uh, assumed that there was life after death. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was, that was his only, uh, that was his, in his view, it was made it his most optimistic film. And I think in, in this movie, the, the, uh, the existence of the, you know, the, the paranormal and, and, and the existence of the, the ghosts, uh, the children that, you know, victims of the past is, which I'm not giving anything away. That's all in the trailer. Um, right. I, I do think that this goes back to where I found, we'll use that word empathy again, where I really found the empathy in Joe's story to be moving. And then, and, and in the expansion of Joe's story into a feature script, we, you know, there's only one of those kids in his story and we've got five. And, and I think that getting to know them and having them be real characters. And I certainly think that one of the most satisfying things about the movie is um, them getting, really getting to experience like you do in any good ghost story, their unfinished business getting finished. Of course, you know, that's kind of what ghost stories are inherently, but you don't usually get to really know the ghosts. You know, you don't yeah. get to care about who they are, what they went through. Um, you know, why they're unsettled about all of that. And, and, and certainly there is something about the satisfaction of them getting to participate in their own 
um, search for justice that that is, I think, kind of beautiful, you know. And I certainly, I certainly looked at it that way. And these kids are, you know, are taken from my own childhood. You know, the there's a char- character uh, named Robin who uh, is is one of the most heroic characters, if not the most heroic character, other than probably Fanny in the in the movie. You know, and he's he's directly taken from you know, this, this, this Mexican kid that I was friends with when I was in, when I was that age, you know, who, mm. and, and I think that the, the camaraderie and friendship and support that you can get from your friends at that age, the meaning that that has is profound and has a re- lasting effect on your life. Well, we encourage all of our listeners to check out the black phone. The second they are able to, it is, it is a fantastic adaptation. It's scary as shit. Ethan Hawke is amazing in it. You know who Ethan Hawke reminded me of in this? I'll probably get yelled at for being hyperbolic here, but I, Gandhi. I can explain myself. No, like the first time I saw The Dark Knight, I remember when it's the scene where Ledger comes into the room. It's like your first real good look at the Joker. And he comes into the, the room with trick. the whole pencil trick and all that. Right. And I remember like sitting in my seat, just like bawling my fists, you know, with anxiety because there was a real sense with with Ledger in those those scenes that and especially on the first time I watched that where there was the sense that he could do anything at any moment and he was wildly dangerous. And I think that Hawk does something similar here where. Man, it's just like a coiled spring the entire time, and you don't know you you really don't know what he's going to do from moment to moment. And that's that's about the highest compliment I think I could could pay the performance because so uh, so funny you said that because i just watched the dark knight again oh uh, shit i just wa- i watched the whole batman trilogy the last three nights with my son he's home for spring break so yeah so uh um tuesday night we watched batman begins and uh and then wednesday the dark knight and then last night we watched dark knight rises and yeah that that I, i've seen it you know i've seen the dark knight i don't know half a dozen times at least but boy, that scene is I do think that that is for me that in the and and the the scene at the at the house with you know when he crashes the party. Those are the two scenes right. that kind of get me the most. But that first scene, he does the pencil trick and it and it's it it it, it, it part of the wildness of it of of Heath Ledger's Joker is when he chooses not to do something as extreme either e- even in a scene of dialogue like he comes in he does the pencil thing, ta-da! It's so fast. You're like, what? What just happened? Right. You know. And then, and then he he sits down, and then he says things are really funny, and then not, and and it's like when he stands up with the bombs, when he's like, you, the 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 one you know mobster gets up and it's going to go after him, and he oh, shows the bombs. And he's like, and the guy says, it's just so amazing. The guy says, you really think you can just walk in here and steal from me? And he's like, yeah. He just, says he just says it like 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 a real answer to the question and, and i i just for whatever reason that stood out to me as like my favorite new moment in that movie you know because yeah. because it, it, the, 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 of, a, of, a, of all the choices he could make the, the kind of it's almost like he's almost a little bit uneasy and even saying it it's it, it's so brilliant the way he is so um uh constantly uneven consistently anarchistically moving around in how he how he reacts to things and speaks about things and that's why that kind of understated 
response was so wonderfully brilliant to me. And I do. So I get what you're saying, because Hawk does the same thing in Black Phone, you know, where at any point he, he could respond almost any any way. Right. And and you really, really get the feeling like, boy, this is at some point, this is going to be bad. This is yeah. going to be really, really bad. It's yeah. really intense. It's an intense yeah. performance. Yep. And balance out great, uh, greatly by, by Mason and, you know, who like carries the rest of it. All I'm saying. And the only thing we've been saying for, for like <laughs> the last hour and a half is, uh, you did good. Yeah. Great cast. Great, oh, great direction. You. you know, great script. Very, uh, very excited for people to finally check this one out. I, I'm, I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm excited as well. Very well. Well, thank you for enjoy. Uh, thank you for enjoying us today. Thank you for joining <laughs> us today. <laughs> You're welcome. I enjoyed you greatly. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Many thanks to Scott Derrickson for coming back to tell us a little bit more about Black Phone and to uh, you know dive into the the many complicated worlds of Stephen King. Like that dude always has a very great like analytical approach to. Mm-hmm. Whatever we ask him to cover, he did that with The Shining, and now he's got Carrie down in the book. So we'll have to get him back for like another kind of philosophical King <laughs> discussion. That I strongly disagree. Strongly disagree. What I what I think is Scott is now claimed two of the all timer titles. I think right. next time he appears on the show, we gotta we have to assign him one, and mm. hopefully one that he hasn't seen before, and go with something far less beloved. All right, Dolan's Cadillac. It is for Scott <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. You've you've had a good run, Scott, but we we, we got to throw you a curveball for the next one. Yeah, you, you you can't go three for three. You you've you've had De Palma and Kubrick. You can't you can't go right into a Darebont. No. <laughs> it the, should just it should, it should just be a rule on the show. Like if someone comes on three times, the third time we get to pick. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, right, writing that down. Hmm. All right. So can't forget that. So uh, what do we have coming up next week, Scott? Well, the listeners will be happy to know that we are finally getting around to 1122 63 next week. Round of applause. Um, I uh, this is one where this is a title where we had an episode lined up for it several months back. Um, In fact, even longer ago than that, but it stretched on for a while. It kept getting moved around the schedule and then ultimately we realized it just wasn't going to come together. But we uh, reached out to another guest that we're very excited to have on the show. And they not only agreed to come on, but they also picked this right out of the gate. This guest is a first timer. We can say that much. First timer. If you are at all familiar with comedy in the past uh, decade or more, um, you're certainly aware of this person. Uh, Very smart dude. Very funny dude. uh, And I'm very intrigued as to why he uh, picked this this particular title. So, right. Yeah, no, we, we haven't recorded it yet. We're, we'll probably be recording about the time you're listening to this uh, episode, actually, tomorrow. Right. Um, yeah, no, it's going to be a very intriguing thing because he's a very funny guy, and this isn't a very funny book. Right. So, so uh, I'm very curious to see what the tone of this whole episode will be. We have a lot of really funny people lined up, by the way. little preview of what's to come. We have some really... Really entertaining, uh, funny people uh, on the docket. Yes, yes we come do. On. This Friday on our Patreon, we will be returning to one of our favorite little mini series that we, we do over there. 
where we are bringing one of our favorites back, Miss Lindsay Travis, to yes. uh, take another uh, stab at King in the Courtroom. So what we are doing is we are going to be doing an episode in defense of Terry Maitland. So this is essentially Lindsay, if you if you uh, are, don't remember uh, she is an actual practicing lawyer, and she did a great Andy Dufresne in defense of where she was like, this is how I would have defended Andy Dufresne. So we we have tasked her with how would she put together a defense for Terry Maitland, the poor sucker at the beginning of The Outsider, uh, who has a mountain of evidence against him as a child killer. And, uh, you know, how would she defend somebody who looks so guilty? That is our bonus this Friday. Yes, very excited for that and for her to come back. Not a King court episode, just to be clear. Right. Uh, yeah. I don't think any of us have the bandwidth or uh <laughs> sanity right now to, to put yep. one of those together again. But um, you know, the possibility is always lurking in the background. This one yes. will be, as Vespi noted, this one will be more like the uh, Andy Dufresne one. And we are very excited to get that one out there. I think that's about it for this week, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that does it. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, as usual, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, whatnot. Give us them five stars, baby. And uh, buy our merch at Cotet19. A lot of people were asking us about where we had drinks, where we went out to eat in New mm. Orleans while we were out there. And we went to some good places. Had had a few you know, uh, crazy misadventures, but um, you know, uh, had some good times. It kind of seemed like everyone just wanted to hear us talk about that. So I was huh. like, well, do you all want an episode where just Vespi and I tell you where we ate and drank in New Orleans? And the replies came back, yes. So hmm. we uh, we have heard your call, and we are going to answer that call. I don't know when we're going to do it, but we'll do it uh, soonish and just drop that as an extra little bonus thing. I don't think that'll be little bonus. Yeah. Yet another little bonus for our, our Patreon subscribers. And if you are not subscribed, make sure to go over to patreon.com slash the Kingcast and sign up. Yes. You'll get not only this new stuff and these random bonus drops from time to time, you'll also get, I don't know what the count is now. We're probably 60, 70, 80-ish bonus episodes at the very least that you uh, haven't heard before that hasn't made it into the main feed. This is true. And I think that about does it. And we'll uh, we'll catch you all next week for our chat about 11-22-63. And we'll see our Patreon subscribers this Friday for In Defense of Terry Maitland. Adios, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. Mm-hmm.